As you can see <clears throat> from our last session on the prophet Zephaniah, we're taking the last three verses of the book, chapter 3. <clears throat> and I begin with the latest <clears throat> scholarly discussion of these three verses, <clears throat> which has been published in a scholarly journal in 2012. <clears throat> and I make the observation that these critical articles... <clears throat> Uh, which it's necessary for me to read to stay on top of the discussion, are written for the most part by liberals. Liberals control the scholarly discussion of the Old and the New Testament, and so it's the territory that you have to deal with when you enter into these investigations and these discussions. <clears throat> that being said, <clears throat> uh, this latest critical liberal article, they don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, they don't believe the Bible's the word of God, <clears throat> but they still write about the Bible because it's an academic discipline for them. <clears throat> it puts money in their pocket. It helps them write books and great royalties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> it's a humanities discipline for them. All right. Now, <clears throat> having said that, this particular article argues that the last three verses of Zephaniah were written by three different redactors. Now, you may ask a question, why does this author believe that there are three different authors for the last three verses? That is, there's an author or redactor or editor for verse 18, there's a different author or redactor for verse 19, and there's a different author or redactor for verse 20. <clears throat> you say, why are you bothering me with this nonsense? <clears throat> Simply because we face the question, why do they think this? Now, the first reason they think this is that because the Hebrew here is extremely difficult. In fact, verse 18 is perhaps impossible. So, because of the difficulty of the Hebrew text, one of the things that liberals do is they will like to correct it or amend it. Uh, they'll make it fit what they think it should say. Uh, but this author wasn't saying that. He was simply saying that we have three different authors. All right, now, in addition to the difficulty of the Hebrew, which causes them to think, well, there must be different authors, <clears throat> there's another explanation, and that's evolution. Now, you don't usually think of evolution when you think of the Bible. When you think of science or when you think of biology, you think of evolution. But nonetheless, the principles of evolution as a philosophy, as a way of looking at the world, the principles of evolution that Darwin proposed in 1859, those principles have infected everything. They've infected theology. They've infected biblical studies. They've infected sociology. They've infected economics. They've infected everything. So in this case, you will see uh, that these three different authors who are proposed by this critical author are actually part of the evolution of Hebrew religion. Now, in the Darwinian biological model, or the scientific model, allegedly scientific model, <coughs> You move from the very simple to the complex. You build up from primeval or primitive one cell to metazoan, many cells, to multiple cells or organisms. <clears throat> well, you apply that principle then to the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew religion that's found in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. So you find that these critics believe that early Hebrew religion was very primitive. In fact, animistic or shamanistic. Then the next step was the Hebrew religion became polytheistic. That is, it had many gods. And they'll even say God had a wife. Yahweh had a bride. And then 
in the next step, Hebrew religion became monotheistic. They only believed in one God. But then Hebrew religion has to become sophisticated. It isn't intellectual. It isn't philosophical. It isn't uh, dynamic enough to be sophisticated on its own because it's too primitive. It's Jewish, you see. It's, it's backward, okay? Israel and Judah are backward countries, okay? So then Israel gets carried off to Assyria or Judah gets carried off to Babylon. And after Babylon, some of them stay in Persia. And after Persia, some of them stay in Greece. And after the Greeks come the Romans, then you see Jewish religion will become more sophisticated, to become more intellectual, to become more exposed to the religious systems of the world, and it will borrow from them. And so Jewish religion will grow as we move towards the birth of Christ. So this particular author is saying that there are strands of that evolution in these three verses. And so he's going to say, in other words, when we move from the Jewish religion in the Persian period, then we have certain concepts that are reflected in one or two of these verses. When we have Jewish religion in the Greek period, the period after Alexander the Great, or the Maccabean period, which is the period after Alexander the Great and the period before the Roman invasion, then we have another kind of Jewish religion. And so we can find traces of that evolution. That is, as Jewish religion is exposed to Persian theology or Zoroastrianism, as Jewish religion is exposed to Greek mythology and Greek religion, and as Jewish religion is exposed to Roman religion and Roman mythology, we have a kind of growing, evolving Jewish Old Testament or Hebrew religion. <clears throat> so that's the other reason why this particular critical author says that there are three different authors, because he can find three different strands of sophistication of Jewish religion here, which do not belong to Zephaniah, do not belong to the 7th century B.C., to the, to the Josianic reforms, etc., 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 ad infinitum, blah, 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 ad nauseum. All right, now with that, uh, <clears throat> with that uh, brilliant rundown of what the uh, critics say about the verse, uh, <clears throat> what do we say about the verse? Well, verse 18 as I already indicated, is very difficult in the original Hebrew. One commentator has said it's unintelligible. Unintelligible. Another commentator has noted that of the multiple English versions, so the multiple English translations of this verse, virtually no two agree. We're going to use the New American Standard as our barometer. The NIV is close to the New American Standard, but it has a slight difference. So you can actually see, if uh, you compare the NASB and the NIV, that that statement of that commentator is accurate. Verse 18 has very little agreement in translation amongst the English versions. So we've got a challenge with this 18th verse. And I'm going to settle for the way the New American Standard has translated it as the basis for our discussion, although I make some comments as we go about possible alternatives. So let's begin then. We acknowledge that verse 18 is a very difficult verse. In the NASB it reads, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts 
It came from you, O Zion. You will notice that O Zion is in italics, so it's not in the original Hebrew text. So that's an insertion. <clears throat> the reproach of exile. Exile is in italics. It is not in the original text. That's also an insertion by the NASB translators. The exile, the reproach of exile is a burden on them. <clears throat> and you have some marginal notes there which indicate there are some alternate translations even by the NASB. <clears throat> but we'll stick with that because it's as good as any. And it has certain things to commend it, in my opinion. Now, the first question we ask about this 18th verse, in addition to how we translate it, is, does it belong to what precedes it or to what succeeds it? In other words, is this verse the end unit of the rhetorical section, verses 14 to 17, or is this verse the beginning of the rhetorical unit, verses 18 through 20. Now, you may guess from the way I've laid out the passage at the top of the, of the left-hand column bold on your outline that I'm obviously indicating it belongs in the latter case. That is, it is the beginning of the last rhetorical unit of the book of Zephaniah. However, let us attempt to justify that designation because, in fact, uh, I am taking a position with respect to verse 18 that very few commentators take. So <clears throat> let's, uh, let's, let's uh, look at the case that is here. First of all, let's ask the question, is there any word that is common to verse 18 that is also common to what follows verse 18? Is there a word that you find in verse 18 that reduplicates or recurs in verse 19 and verse 20. Thank you. Marge said gather, and that is correct. The word gather appears in all three verses. And now in verse 18, you'll notice that I've given you the Hebrew form of that word, which is pronounced asaf. And this word gather here is emphasizing what? Now, when I say what, I'm asking for a positive or negative vector, okay? Is the word gather here and its place in this verse, 18, is it emphasizing something which is positive or is it emphasizing something which is negative? What would you say? Yes, you're right, Kate. It is a positive emphasis. You'll notice in verse 19, we even have the word save in the text, in the NASB, NASB. So there is a redemptive emphasis here. This gathering is an eschatologically redemptive gathering. I'm, in fact, going to call it an ingathering. But we have a positive use of asaf here, of gather. Now, in verse 19... <clears throat> Interestingly, that word gather is not based upon the Hebrew word asaf. It comes from the verb kabatz, which means more like assemble than to gather, although it could be translated gather as well as assemble. Now, asaf also occurs in chapter 3, verse 8. And if you'll turn back to that uh, chapter, to that verse rather, <clears throat> The Lord says, therefore, wait for me, 
for the day when I rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision to gather, there is Asaf, gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured. <clears throat> in addition, Asaf occurs in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now there, it is translated by the NASB, remove, rather than gather. Now that is true. Asaf can be translated remove. And in chapter 1, verse 2, the duplicate, I will gather, gather uh, from the face of all the earth. The preposition from, which appears in that first verse, suggests something's going to be taken away. That's the reason the, the nod goes to the word remove here in chapter 1 for asaf, asaf. Now, from chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 8, what kind of an emphasis do we have in those verses? Notice the emphasis we had in 3.18. It's positive. What about the emphasis where asaf occurs in 3.8 and 1.2, what would you say? Negative. negative. It is a negative emphasis because these, that uh, gathering is for destruction or that removal is a removal in the indignation of God's wrath. All right, so as, we, as I read verse 8, you may have noticed, if you go back to 3.8, you may have noticed that I read the word gather and the word assemble in the same verse. Now, that is exactly what we have in 3, 18, 19, and 20. We have those two Hebrew verbs, asaf and kabatz. Asaf occurs in 3, 8, the word gather for the nations. And in the very next line, assemble is kabatz, assemble kingdoms. So what the writer is doing what Zephaniah is doing is using two Hebrew terms synonymously, virtually interchangeably, <clears throat> so that in 3.8, he can use the word assemble rather than gather because he's also used the word gather. And in 3.18 and 3.19 and 20, he can use the two terms interchangeably. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> if you push me hard, we can say there is a slight nuanced difference between gathering and assembling, <clears throat> and we can accept that slight difference, but to all intents and purposes, these are virtually synonymous verbs, and they're occurring in Zephaniah in, in <clears throat> reciprocal or parallel fashion. And so he uses them symmetrically. All right, now, <clears throat> let's go back to chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> I'm going to suggest that this verse is describing a gathering as well, an assembling as well. <clears throat> it's a gathering or assembly, as you will notice from the NASB, of the worshipers of the Lord. They are called his dispersed ones. They are his diaspora. They are the scattered and dispersed who are now, according to verse 10, coming to worship the Lord. They are bringing their gifts, their offerings to his presence. 
This is the reverse of the gathering in verse 8 of chapter 3. That gathering in verse 8 is a gathering for destruction. This is the same kind of gathering that is occurring in verse 18 of chapter 3. It is a gathering of worshipers from Zion, a gathering of worshipers from all peoples of the earth. Notice verse 20. So we have a reverse paradigm within chapter 3, a reversal of an assembly for destruction in 3.8, an assembly for worship, devotion, and in-gathering. We have a gathering for uh, all the peoples of the earth to come up to the center of God's worshiping presence rather than in 3.8, driving and scattering them away to destruction. Now, the same reverse paradigm is present also in the Yom Yahweh. In chapter 1, verse 14, remember, near is the great day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh. Near and coming, listen to the day of the Lord. It is, a, it is as a warrior crying out bitterly. Now, you remember from the rest of that first chapter, verses 15 through 18, that that day of the Lord, which is indicated in verse 14, is a terrible day. It is a day of God's wrath. It is a day of gathering for judgment and destruction. What kind of a day is going on, is the day which is described in verse 18 of chapter 3? What would you say? It's a day of wrath in 114. What kind of a day is coming or is present in 318? Day of blessing. It's a day of blessing. Can I have another word? Restoration. Day of restoration. Can I have another word? Comfort. Well, can I have another word? Grace. It is a day of grace. All right. So once again, we're reminded of the bookends of Zechariah, or Zephaniah, rather. The bookends of the book, the day of grace, the day of wrath, the D.A.S. Ray, famous Verdi Requiem, or in fact, any Requiem which has a D.A.S. Ray in it, <clears throat> and D.A.S. Grazie, the day of grace. So here you see it once again, the reverse paradigm in which God is reversing wrath with grace and mercy. All right, so we built a case for the fact that there is a relationship between verses 18 to 20 of chapter 3 and other verses and sections of the prophet Zephaniah. In other words, there's a holistic paradigm here. It's not as if some editor came and added something here that's not consistent with what we know from the rest of the book. These verses are consistent with what the author of the book has done elsewhere. No editor would be able to pick up that subtlety, particularly if it were three or four hundred years after the fact. All right, now, is there any other justification for the unity of verses 18 to 20, besides what we've already suggested? What do you think? Is there any other thing here in these three verses that demonstrates or proves to you that these three verses belong together? In other words, verse 18 is not the end of verses 14 to 17. It is the beginning of its own rhetorical or narrative unit. Verse 20 says, at that time I will bring you in. 
at that time when I gathered you together. So what's your point? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a positive action that he's taking to bless them. Who's taking it? The Lord. Okay, so does the personal pronoun alter the subject? In other words, who is the speaking subject here? God himself. Who is the speaking subject in verse 17? It's Zephaniah. Notice the change in pronoun. The change in verse 17 from the he pronoun to the I pronoun in verse 18, 19, and 20. In fact, you have a, a flood of I pronouns in 18, 19, and 20. All right, the change in speaker then also suggests that verse 18 belongs with verse 19 and 20, not with verses 14 through 17. And that emphatic, I, divine initiative. Notice the I wills, I will, I will, which once again is a flood of I wills. This is God's doing. It is his sole act. It is the act of God the Lord who works his will, I will, in history. And the contrast, as we pointed out, with the he will in verse 17. All right, so <clears throat> I am satisfied that I've made the case that verse 18 belongs with verses 19 to 20 as a distinct literary and rhetorical unit. And I've made that case on a number of uh, bases. <clears throat> it is not uh, a, a mishmash of three redacted verses from different periods in the evolution of Hebrew religion. It is not. It comes from one pen, from one author, from the same author who uses the very language and imagery of these three verses elsewhere in this book. So, Zephaniah wrote it, and it hangs together as its own rhetorical unit. Case closed. Well, in my opinion, case closed. But, any questions? All right, now, <clears throat> verse 18 is part of a larger redemptive historical unit. This is a reverse eschatological paradigm, a reverse eschatological paradigm. It is the reverse of chapter 1, verse 2. So let's go back again to chapter 1, verse 2. Keep our finger in chapter 3. Let's turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, and someone read it out for us. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Thank you. So chapter 1, verse 2 is describing a what? We've talked about this before. An uncreation, very good, a decreation, cosmic reverse creation. Well, what's going on in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 3? A recreation, a cosmic new creation, persons from among all peoples of the earth, verse 20, being gathered into the Lord's presence. 
All right, so we have a reverse eschatological paradigm. Decreation, chapter 1, verse 2, at the beginning of the book. Recreation, chapter 3, verses 18, 20, at the end of the book. The very hinge points upon which the book continues to pivot. Day of wrath, day of grace. Day of decreation, day of recreation. See these parallel symmetries or antithetical symmetries. All right, second of all, chapter 3, verse 8, verse 18 of chapter 3 is the reverse of chapter 1, verse 14. Now, I've already read that, but you can look at it again. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Chapter 1, 14 is an assembly or a gathering for the wrath of God. What is going on in chapter 3, verses 18 to 20? It is an assembly or a gathering for the grace of God. A reverse eschatological paradigm. And once again, chapter 3, verse 8, for letter C. Verse 18 is the reverse of 3, 8. This is a gathering or an assembly for destruction. And 3, 8 and 18, I'm sorry, 3, 18 to 20 is an assembly or a gathering for redemption or for salvation. In fact, the word save, the verb save is used in verse 19. We once again observe that the book pulses with this pattern of reverse paradigm. It pulses, it vibrates, it's vitally alive. It grasps the drama of God's act in history in terms of his wrath and judgment and his act in history in terms of his eschatological transformation and redemption. All right, now, there's one other thing to note in this 18th verse. The NASB reads, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. Now, that word for appointed feasts is one of the big problems in this 18th verse. The Hebrew word appears elsewhere in the Old Testament to mean appointed time or appointed place. And here, the NASB is rendering it appointed feast. All right, I'm going to run with that. And I'm going to draw attention to chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to attempt to justify the NASB choice of appointed feasts here by looking at the beginning of uh, the book as well, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Now, in those verses, you will notice that the prophet says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. There's that Yom Yahweh phrase again. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated or sanctified his guests. It will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish. And he goes on to list those whom he will punish. Now, here is this somewhat macabre, <clears throat> macabre description of God 
preparing a sacrifice of his own. And his guests are going to be the victims. They're going to be sacrificed on the altar of his wrath. They're going to be consumed in the fire of his anger. They're going to be punished on that day when he sets his sacrifice, when he sets his holocaust, when he sets his burnt offering. Now, I say macabre imagery, but it is intended to be graphically startling that God is going to offer sacrifice. And on the altar of history, he's going to make the kingdom of Judah, Judah, the victims of his sacrificial holocaust. He's going to consume this nation with fire. He's going to burn it up like a burnt offering. And consequently, I'm going to use that imagery at the beginning to help explain the imagery at the end in 3.18. I'm going to justify, I'm going to suggest justifying the translation of the NASB, the appointed feasts, as being the antithesis of the sacrifice in chapter 1, verse 7. Because the feasts of the Jewish calendar included sacrifices. So this appointed feast is going to include sacrifices, but not the sacrifices of a holocaust, not the sacrifices of a city or a nation going up in smoke on the altar of the Lord's justice and hot wrath. This is a sacrifice of joy. This is a sacrifice of ingathering. This is a sacrifice of salvation. This is a gathering to a sacrifice of vindication and celebration. Once again, we're looking for patterns of reverse imagery within the book to justify a very difficult verse as far as Hebrew translation is concerned in verse 18 of chapter 3. And I'm going to go back to that first chapter and lay hold of that image of sacrifice for destruction. And here I'm going to turn it around with the appointed feasts and their implicit sacrifices of celebration. That ingathering in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, with a gathering for death. This ingathering in chapter 3, verse 18, is a gathering for a lavish, life, vital, vivifying celebration in the banquet glory hall of the Lord God of everlasting eternity. This is a joyous declaration of a festival ingathering like the feasts of the Jewish calendar were festival, joyous occasions. Any questions? All right. Now we come to verses 19 to 20. And we want to examine these two verses to see what phrase binds these two verses together. We've seen that the word gather or assemble, kabatz in the Hebrew, we've seen that that ties these two verses together, actually ties these two verses to verse 18, even though a different word for gather is used there. Nonetheless, it is a synonym and is used elsewhere in in the book of Zephaniah interchangeably. So, What phrase do you see in verses 19 and 20 
which binds the two together reduplicatively or recursively. At that time is one. Very good. All right, now there's also another one. But at that time is the one which is most prominent, most important. I will give them honor and praise. Bob? I will give them praise and honor in 19 and 20. I will give you honor and praise in verse 20. Very good. That's the second phrase. Okay? Now, uh, the word that is translated in NIV, honor, is translated in the NASB how? Anyone? Renown. Renown. The Hebrew is literally the, a name. I will give them a name. The Hebrew word shame. Sounds like the English word shame. It's pronounced, uh, it's pronounced with the same sound. All right. So, praise and renown or a name in 19 as Bob pointed out. And then, Bob, how did it appear in verse 20? It will give you honor and praise rather than praise and honor. So what do you see there in the relationship between the occurrence of the two phrases? A reversal. Yes. How do we call that? What's our Greek word for that? A, B, B prime, A prime. Yeah. What is that? It is a chiasm. So we have a chiastic reversal between those Hebrew words in verses 19 and 20. Praise is the A. Renown or honor or name is B. Then it reverses to B prime in the next verse. Renown or name or honor and praise A prime in verse 20. All right, so... Verses 19 and 20 are definitely tied together by the vocabulary, by the imagery. But let's take that first phrase that uh, Ben identified at that time, and let's take a look at its relationship to a previous phrase in this third chapter. Glance up the, up the page, up the chapter, glance up towards verse 16. In that day. In that day. Now, now we want to ask the question, what does that phrase, in that day, which is very similar to in that time, okay, what does that phrase, in that day, signal in verse 16? No. What city do you see in that verse? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. It is the dawning of the new Jerusalem. Yes, it signals a new Jerusalem in that day, verse 16. Well, what does this phrase, which occurs twice here in verses 19 and 20, what does it signal here?
Ingathering of the redeemed. True. But it's a place in verse 16. And what? Jerusalem? Pardon? New Jerusalem. Not a new Jerusalem in 19 and 20. A new what? Not he- not heaven, but do you see earth twice in verse once in verse nineteen and once in verse twenty? Earth. earth. There it is, twice. Okay? So a new creation. In verse sixteen, it's a new Jerusalem. In verses nineteen twenty, it's a new creation. It's a new earth, as in a new heavens and a new earth. The transcendent heaven and earth of the kingdom of heaven which is existing now in the presence of the risen Christ. All right, so what we have then at the end of this marvelous prophecy is a elevation or a transformation of Jerusalem into an eschatological city and the earth into an eschatological dwelling place, a new city of God, eternal in the heavens, a new creation, eternal in the heavens, a new land where there is no more of everything is going to be described in verses 19 and 20. Question? Yes, Art. Are the new Jerusalem and the new earth the same? <clears throat> One is the city that is part of the dimension. The earth is the dimension, the new creation is the dimension, and the city of God is at the center of that dimension. To all intents and purposes, they're coterminous, meaning they're co-eternal. But you, you, you combine that imagery, you see the book of Revelation, which is the new Jerusalem extended eternally and the paradise of God extended eternally, the land of, Eden, of eschatological Eden, the, the land of the eschatological Canaan. All right, Zephaniah is... Uh, Alluding to that, he's using the language of the imagery of his own historical time, and he's projecting it into an eschatological and everlasting future. And what about the lame? Well, this is an interesting verse. God says, I will save the lame. Let's go back to Micah. Turn back for a moment to the prophet Micah. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And when someone has it, read it out. Micah 4, 6 and 7. In that day. Notice, in that day again. Go ahead. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Asaf. And gather the outcasts. Kapats. Even those whom I have afflicted. Verse 7. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. New Jerusalem. From now on and forever. Adolam. Okay, so, does Zephaniah know Micah? <laughs> Interesting question. Interesting question. Can't settle that one, but it's very significant that both Zephaniah and Micah use the language and imagery of the lame and the outcast being gathered in in the eschatological eternity, the eschatological forever, as Micah makes explicit 
in chapter 4, verse 7. So we notice that uh, this language of gathering in is the same here in Zephaniah as it was in the 8th century B.C. prophet Micah. All right, well, what about Isaiah 35, verse 6? What is that verse? You really should know it. But go ahead and look it up. When did the lame leap for joy? And when was the tongue of the dumb loosed? Ben, what do you say? When Jesus came to do it. Messianic prophecy. And you'll notice that the word, the verb in 3.19 is the verb save. Yasha in Hebrew. To deliver. To liberate. The lame will be delivered from their disability. The lame will be set free from their helplessness. The lame will be saved from their infirmity. And Jesus provides a provisional, miraculous sign that that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus touches the lame man, When Jesus says to the lame man, take up thy bed and walk. When Jesus does that, he is giving you a visual picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is a place where there are no lame people. They are whole, perfect in health. They are not halt. They have no withered limbs. Jesus gives you a provisional sign of what the kingdom of heaven is like. For the consummate sign is that there are no lame in that city. There are no halt in that city. There is no one with a blemish in that city. Because Jesus has made all things new. So this word salvation here, with respect to the lame, is poignant with allusions to the fulfillment of this imagery provisionally in Christ's healing the lame and in the portrait of the kingdom of heaven where there is no, in book of Revelation, where there are no halt or lame or anything that works an abomination. The same is true of the outcasts. Now here the outcasts are possibly the exiles. New American Standard chooses the word, chose the word exile in verse 18, but you'll notice that it was in italics, and so it's not in the actual Hebrew text. It was their best way of trying to make sense out of that difficult Hebrew, and it's fair enough. But outcasts may help explain what the implication of verse 18 was, namely that these outcasts are those who are exiled as a result of the Babylonian conquest. 586 B.C. Finally, that word renown. I'm using the NASB translation. 
The word renown suggests esteem or distinction. The NIV translation, honor, is not quite what is included in that word uh, renown because it carries with it the notion of notoriety, the the sense of notoriety. But notice that this uh, renown, which in the Hebrew is name, is also the same Hebrew word that occurs back in verse 9 of chapter 3. So if you turn back to verse 9, whoever has it, read it out. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The name of the Lord there is the Hebrew word shem. It's the very same Hebrew word that is used in 19 and 20 for renown or honor, shame. The name that they bear is the name that they reflect. They reflect the name above every name. They reflect the name of the Lord in the name that they are given as an indication of God's esteem of them, God's distinguishing them, God making them a peculiar people of note unto his glory. The name that goes with the glory presence of the king in their midst, verse 15. To be in the midst of this king of glory, to bear his name in his midst, before his face, is to reflect the glory of that name and to bask in the presence of his being in the midst of you. And also, verse 17, he is the savior in their midst, being present in the midst of this savior And his royal glory is to soak up, to drench yourself with that glory of salvation, that rich, lavish radiance of royal dignity, that notoriety that comes from being one who has been given the right to call on the Shem Yahweh, the name of the Lord. This word renown is not a word of boasting arrogance. This word renown is a word of confirmation, identification, and union with the name in whose midst you have been placed. The name of the Savior, the name of the King of Israel, the name of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. All right, well, we've reached the time of our break, so let's take a break, and we'll come back to finish our discussion in a few minutes. All right, now back to Zephaniah. 
and we're at the reverse paradigm on the back sheet. Following the uh, outline there in verse 19 particularly, where we have these repetitive no's. There will be no oppressors, first of all. Why will there be no oppressors in this eschatological glory land? Because they will all have been defeated. There will be no disabled or helpless or impotent lame person because they were all have been risen up to leap like a heart. There will be no halt and lame in that eschatological future. There will be no exiled outcasts, no dispossessed. You'll notice he emphasizes the disability of lameness and the dispossession of being outcast, being an exile. That will be reversed by the gathering unto the Lord God who will be in the midst of that eschatological dimension. And there will be no shame, for they will have become guiltless in praise of their exalted Lord God. He will wash all their guilt and shame away as they behold him in his glory in their midst. Right now, we close Zephaniah with a narrative drama. This is a story. This is a story drama. This is a drama which invites you into the narrative. It is a drama which is for you, who belong to the King, the Savior, the Lord of the New Jerusalem, the in your midst God and liberator. In that narrative, dramatic arena, in that story world, that other world story, in that story of that other world, the drama is you move from sorrow and grief to joy. You are drawn from reproach to renown. You are liberated from oppression and restored to the favor of God. You move from being lame to being saved from lameness and made whole. You move from being an outcast to one who has been gathered in and welcomed by the king in your midst, who is also the savior in your midst. You move from shame to fame, renowned for the sake of the name of the Lord 
whose name you revere. Who are the participants in this narrative drama? Who are the participants in this story? They are the people of God. The people of God from the nations. The people of God from Yehud or Judah. The people of God from Yishrael. They are the people of God from Judah, Israel, and the nations. Where is the location of this narrative drama? Where is the location of this story? It is the new Jerusalem of heaven everlasting. It is the place where all of these glorious and beautiful, wonderful experiences, joy, salvation, being gathered to the Lord, having the Lord in your midst, having the Lord as your Savior, having the Lord as your King, is the dimension which is everlasting, eternal, never-ending, no cessation, it will never be over. It will go on forever and ever and ever as God the Lord in your midst goes on forever and ever as the Savior in your midst goes on forever and ever as you bask in his in your midst presence forever and ever and ever. Oh, that will be glory, as the hymn says. That will be glory. And the actor in this drama is God the Lord, who in this section of Zephaniah, as we have said over and over again, is the Savior and King, the gracious ingatherer who brings into his sweet presence, who brings into his midst, who brings into his glorious presence those from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven whom he has bestowed his grace upon through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, by the operation of the Holy Spirit. You will notice the last words of this book. Says the Lord. We turn back to chapter 1. You'll notice the first words of this book. The word of the Lord. The book begins as it ends. The book ends as it begins. It begins and ends with the word of the Lord. Between the bookends of the first verse and the last verse, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 20, between the bookends is the word of the Lord. He frames the word of the Lord within the three chapters by the word of the Lord at the beginning and at the end. Thus saith the Lord at the outset, thus saith the Lord at the conclusion. This is the mark of an inspired craftsman. This is the mark 
of genius. It is the mark of divine inspiration upon the life and the career of this great prophet, Zephaniah. But that world in which he moved, that city, that old Jerusalem below in which he lived, that nation, that land of Judah, which he traversed, that land, that city, that era, was an era of darkness, deep darkness. Darkness which he searched out with his lamplight, chapter 1, verse 12. Darkness which he examined with his searchlight. And as he shined his light into the darkness of his land, into the darkness of his city, into the darkness of his era, into the darkness of the age in which he lived, as he shined his light into that world What came back in reflection was darkness. And God said, I will destroy this darkness. This darkness hates the light. I will give it what it hates. I will give it darkness. This darkness despises the glory light of my name, my presence, My city, my heaven, my son, I will give it what it wants. No heaven, no glory, no son, no redemption. I will give it death, darkness, and destruction. And so it came to pass in 586 B.C. that the darkness that Zephaniah saw, the darkness that was reflected even in his lamplight, that that darkness devoured a whole nation, it devoured a whole civilization, it devoured a whole generation, it devoured a whole people. That inky black Darkness could only be redeemed by the direct intervention of the Lord of Light, who in his fullness of time would shine the light of his eternal Son upon the dark world of Jerusalem, the dark land of Judah, Palestine, the dark generation of Greco-Roman culture, the dark civilization of a narcissistic world bent upon its own self-pleasure and brutality. Into that world came the light of this dark world. In fulfillment of what Zephaniah projected, 
provisionally shining the light into the darkness again, only this time with supernatural light and power. And the darkness reared up once again as it did in the days of Zephaniah. Darkness reared up once again and snuffed out that light. Destroyed its living breath. Took away its life and buried it in a tomb. Shut it up in darkness of a grave and rolled a stone over it to encapsulate that light in everlasting darkness. So that dancing death on that day in which Jerusalem was cast into pitch black darkness, dancing death danced, danced a jig in victory over the light of the world. And death said, I have closed you in my blackness. And death said, I have shut you up in my void. And death said, I have conquered you with my talents of inky black misery. But that victory dance was short-lived. For on the third day, light streamed forth from that empty tomb. Even the radiance of the angels who guarded the portal of that open sarcophagus, that open monument, that open mausoleum, even the radiance of the angels displayed the light triumphing over the darkness. Light and immortality came to life that day. And the light of the world rose up to show the darkness could not hold him. The light of the world appeared to 500 at once to demonstrate that the void of inky blackness and death could not trap him. The light of the world came forth to shed his light upon the dark souls of sinners such as you and me came forth to shed his light. The light of even Zephaniah, the prophetic light of the prophet of the old era embodied in this one who is the very personal light of God, eternal and everlasting in his glorious radiance. There is no darkness in Christ Jesus. There is no void in Christ Jesus. There is no inky black hole in Christ Jesus. There is nothing but light and glory and radiance and beauty forever. Zephaniah projects it. Christ accomplishes it. Zephaniah anticipates it. Christ embodies it. You are driven by Zephaniah to Christ Jesus, the eschatological prophet 
of light because he is the co-essential, co-eternal light of the triune God. I leave you with Zephaniah's invitation to come into the story, to come into the narrative of these last verses of his third chapter from verses 10 through 20, an invitation to come to the Savior in your midst, to the King of heaven in your midst, to the light of glory in your midst, to the one who draws you out of the nations from every tribe and tongue, who brings you into a new Jerusalem which will never be destroyed, never be surrounded by enemies, never be conquered, brings you to a land of milk and honey, eternal in his swath of radiance, heaven's glory even now, the heavenly eschatological Canaan for the people of God from all nations and from Judah and Israel as well. You are the remnant of the end of the age. Even as those who heard Zephaniah's message and believed were the remnant of that ancient age, you stand in the same dramatic relationship as they did to the crisis of your age, to the darkness that is descending upon your culture, descending upon your nation, descending upon your capital city, the darkness that is all around, which is going to bring the just wrath of Almighty God. It will come. It came. It will come again. There is only one escape. That is to the one who is not dead, but is alive forevermore and says, come to me and I will change your darkness into everlasting light and life. We leave Zephaniah having been brought to Christ. Any questions? Thank you for this study. Yes. Yes. Thank you for coming. Let's close with prayer. But don't leave your seats after the prayer. I have something more to say after we pray. Father, we thank you for the sweet glory of the book of Zephaniah. Yes, we stand in awe of your just wrath. How we realize, Lord, that we deserve it. We are certainly worthy of it. We make no pretense to think that we should be exempt from it. For we are sinners such as they were. But we rejoice, Lord, in your grace. In the wonderful revelation that Zephaniah provides of your mercy, 
your forgiveness. You're gathering us out of the darkness. Redeeming us from our sins. Taking away all our blemishes and disabilities, our inabilities. Making us whole in Christ Jesus. Turning us from sorrow from melancholy, from depression, from being turned in on ourselves, even dealing with us as outcasts in our own world, gathering us into your presence, your wonderful, glorious presence, your wonderful heavenly presence, your wonderful new Jerusalem presence, your wonderful royal presence. All of these images come to us from this book and find their yea and amen in Christ Jesus, your son. We pray, Lord, you enrich our hearts and our lives with these images, with this story, that you draw us into the narrative in a way that we are transformed by it because Christ transforms by his spirit. We ask you, O Lord, to save us from a dying and unbelieving generation. And we will rejoice as we carry your name and worship your name and adore you with our lives and our gifts and our offerings. We will bless you and magnify you all the days of our life, even to and through persecution, if that be your will. For you, through Christ Jesus, your Son, by your Spirit, you are our life. You are our light. You are the Word of the living God. Spoken, written, and incarnate. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.